Good evening. It's very good to be here. We have a number of visitors with us from, seems like, all over the place, and uh, we want to recognize your sacrifice and your time and your money and your effort to be here. Uh, we're certainly thankful for your presence. We want to express our appreciation for you participating with us in this service tonight. Uh, we're very hopeful that over the course of the next two nights and also Sunday, Lord willing, that the studies that are prepared will be a blessing to you. Uh, as Brother Michael mentioned, we're going to be talking about keys to holiness. And uh, we're going to take our text from 2 Peter chapter 1. And uh, we want to invite you to study along with us. And I'm glad to be here and to share some things uh, from my study of God's Word. And, uh, and I hope these things will be a blessing to you because they've been a tremendous blessing to me. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. Peter writing here says, "Is His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. Now listen, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You know that phrase in the middle of this passage that you might be partakers of the divine nature. That kind of sounds mysterious, doesn't it? What does he mean by that? Well, let's continue reading for a moment. I want to go into verse 5, where he says, But also for this very reason, also for this very reason, he says, Giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. You know, these are the things that we often refer to as speakers as the Christian virtues or Christian graces. Uh, no matter what you want to call these things or identify these things, uh, the purpose of these things is to bring us to a state of maturity, spiritual maturity, and we often associate these with growth. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that's true. But when we really look at what these things, the goal of all these things are, really what they lead to is repentance and renewal. And that's really what growth is. It's a changing of the inner man. It's a changing of how we live. It's a changing of how we think, of what we say. It's a renovation of who we are. And that sounds foreign to the world. They, they think we ought to just be true to ourselves. But friends, God has not called you to be true to yourself. He's called you to be like His Son. And when we look at these different virtues or graces, these aren't just a description of things God wants us to do or add to our life. They're a description of who God is and who Jesus was when He walked on the earth. He exemplified virtue, knowledge, temperance, godliness, patience. He perfected brotherly kindness and love. Jesus lived his life with all of these virtues. Partakers of the divine nature, being more like God, taking on the characteristics of Jesus Christ. That's what these are about. So tonight we're going to talk about, and throughout our studies, we're going to talk about four of these things. Not because I dislike the other ones, but we're going to, in particular, talk about four of these things, virtue, temperance, and then patience and godliness, and how those all work together to bring us closer to the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
Uh, what is virtue exactly? And there's a whole lot of different ideas about what the word virtue means. And I'll tell you, the, the Greek word is sometimes a little bit ambiguous because uh, it literally means valor or manliness. But in the context of the way the word is used, and it's only used a handful of times in Scripture, it really has more to do with the idea of a moral excellence or a moral goodness. Virtue is defined by theirs as a virtuous course of thought, feeling, or action. That word course means a path or a road or a way. Oh, it's a way of life. It's a virtuous course of thought, feeling, or action. It's uh, defined as virtue or moral goodness. And uh, the second definition of that is any particular moral excellence. And then he gives some examples like modesty or purity. Uh, well, that may not help us a whole lot, but it gives us an idea of what virtue is. It means to have a high standard of morality. Webster's Bible Dictionary defines virtue as moral goodness, the practice of moral duties, and the abstaining from vice or conformity of life and conversation to the moral law. Now, I think we need to spend a little bit of time talking about this word moral, okay? What does that even mean, moral? And uh, this may seem kind of strange, but I'm going to give you a definition from the atheist as to what they would define morality as. And you may think, well, the atheist has no idea of morality. Well, I thought that too, but apparently some of them do. And uh, one of those very prolific atheists made the statement that he believed morality was the course of action that resulted in the least amount of harm. Now, just think about that for a minute. On the surface, you might think, well, that sounds fair. Does it? Does he really believe that? Well, in the same debate where this man made this statement... He also made the statement that if it took him raping two million women to save the entire human race, that him raping two million women would be, quote, moral. Doesn't sound so good now, does it? That a very heinous and terrible act could be called moral. Why? Because his idea of morality is it's assessed by our mind and by mathematics. Kill eight to save ten. That's moral in his mind. Don't buy into that. But there's another idea that's probably more popular in the world, and that's the idea of moral relativism. And where did I go to find a definition? Well, I didn't know, didn't know there was a website, but moralrelativism.com. Um, I thought, well, surely they know. <laughs> this is the way they define moral relativism. We can all decide what is right for ourselves. You decide what's right for you. I'll decide what's right for me. Moral relativism says it's true for me if I believe it. Now, is this anything new? Well, friends, this isn't new at all. In fact, we can go all the way back to the book of Judges where it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And you know, this sounds real good in that society that says, Well, we just need to coexist and we need to allow everybody to decide what's right for their life because who am I to say what's right for your life and who are you to say what's right for my life? But then a person like Adolf Hitler stands up and does what's right in his eyes and everybody goes, Whoa, whoa, that's wrong. Why? If morality is completely relative, friends, it's relative across the board. And who are we to say anybody else is wrong if they believe it's right? The truth is, there is a standard, an objective standard of right and wrong. The Bible says in Jeremiah 10 and 23, O Lord, I know that the way or the path or the course of man is not in himself. 
It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Jeremiah says it's not inside of man. We don't possess the ability or the perception or the power or the wisdom to direct our own path. Our ways are not the right ways. In fact, Solomon said this, There is a way which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. You know, I think we can all identify with the fact that sometimes we believe within our mind that we are right. You ever get in an argument with somebody and you just think as they're arguing, I already know I'm right, you might as well just stop talking. Only to find out later, we may not have had the answer that we thought we really did. We may not have possessed the wisdom we thought we did. We really weren't right. We just thought we were right because it seemed right to us. There's a way that seems right to man. But that road leads somewhere, friends. And it doesn't lead toward growth. It doesn't lead toward holiness. It certainly doesn't lead toward life. He says it leads toward death. And when man is left to his own devices, in his own mind, in his own judgment, in his own standards, friends, that's where we end up, toward destruction and death and chaos. Morality in America has drastically changed. And we were talking about last night and, uh, about the changes that we've seen in our world. Now, I'm 37 years old, but I can tell you, I graduated in 1999, and from 1999 until now, I've seen some tremendous changes in the way that our society views morality. When you look at the idea of premarital sex, I remember a time when that wasn't even on television. It wasn't even on television. It was scandalous. It was wrong. Society would not accept such a thing. But now the majority of people that were polled said it was either acceptable or it wasn't even a moral issue. It doesn't belong in the category of right and wrong. It's just... It doesn't matter. It's relative. Abortion, if you look at the percentages on that, you say, well, 50% of people, that's way bigger than the other. Yeah, but the other two still outweigh the 49% that said it was unacceptable. The fact that there's some people that say that a death, a murder of a child is not even a moral issue. And you know, I'm not really surprised at this with what's being said in society today. And I'm not really surprised to see the rampant acceptance of homosexuality. But I'll tell you what was interesting to me. It's when it came to extramarital affairs, what we would roughly call adultery. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Did the percentages change. And you know why? Because all these other things are conceptual, but this one's personal. And all of a sudden, it's not about what's right for you and what's right for me. It's about, it's always wrong for you to hurt me. See, when these things become personal, we start to change our view on morality. And maybe it is a moral issue. You know what the fact is? The things that we see today that have not even been looked at as moral issues are still moral issues. But we're told in the world today, you know, sometimes it's okay to lie. Especially if it will spare someone from having their feelings hurt. So if your wife asks you a question and you don't want to give her an honest answer because it'll hurt her feelings, just lie to her. That's okay. We're not hurting anybody. And if I want to sit at my house and get drunk and I don't get behind the wheel of a car and drive, that's okay because I'm not hurting anybody. 
And I'll tell you, some of these things have even become virtuous in the eyes of people, such as the practice of pride. And when you go into a bookstore in a Christian section, you see all these books on self-esteem. And we think, well, self-esteem's a good thing. Well, have you ever looked at the definition of self-esteem? It means to have a high opinion of one's own self. Does that sound virtuous to you? You know what the Bible says? It says, with all lowliness, with all lowliness and humility... Let nothing be done through strife or self-esteem. God says, don't esteem yourself, esteem others better than yourself. We've said, well, pride is a Christian virtue. That's what the world says. You need pride. You need more of it. And you know what I think the real problem is? Do Do you remember reading about in the book of Exodus how God's people were enslaved to a tyrannical dictator? A man who made them serve with rigor and bitter hard bondage. And they didn't know who God was. And you know what? God revealed himself to them. He came in and with a mighty hand, he delivered those people out of Pharaoh's grasp. And they saw those things. They saw the river turn to blood. They saw the the dust become light. They saw all those things. They They walked on the dry ground through the Red Sea. When they were hungry, God fed them. When they were thirsty, God gave them drink. And they relied on this God that they had come to know. And then Moses goes up on the mountain to receive God's law. And you know what they did? They forgot who God was. You know what they said to Aaron? Make us a God. Make us a God. I want to ask you a question. Why did they need to make a God? They had a God. And I'm going to submit to you the reason why they said make us a God is because they wanted God to be molded into an image that was formed by their imagination and their desires. It was something that they had become accustomed to, something they had become familiar with when they were in Egyptian bondage. All their life they had seen idols. They'd seen these false gods. And they reverted back to their base instincts. And you know people are no different today. In fact, in the, in the Roman letter, Paul says this. In Romans chapter 1, he says, and of the Gentiles, and they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image like corruptible man. And birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. You know what they did? They changed their image of who God was and is. He says, therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their heart to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. You know what people do? They look at God and they think about God. They try to perceive who God is. And you know how they form God in their mind? They form him in comparison and in relation to how they feel. And so we start saying, well, my God. I remember one time I was preaching in a place and I talked about God's justice. And I was talking about the man that they had stoned in the wilderness for picking up sticks. And this lady came up to me after church and she said, I want you to know something. My God never killed anybody. My God and her God were apparently different. (laughs) 
And I told her, well, the God of the Bible has killed a lot of people. And we may not like that, but it's true. It just didn't fit with her perception of who she thought God ought to be. And people do that. They say, well, my God would never ask me to give up something that I truly love. He wouldn't do that. And my God would not ask me to be anything different than who he's made me. And he loves and he accepts me for exactly just the way I am. That's my God. And I'm going to tell you something, friends. There is no your God and my God. There's just God. And he is who he is. And when I say there's no my God, I don't mean that I don't have a God. I'm just saying you can't make up a God in your mind and decide that is God. God is who he is. And you know, there's people who've actually encountered God that they thought they had a perception of who God was until they really encountered him. And you know, probably the most interesting example of this is in the book of Job. And, uh, you know, when God talked about who Job was in Job chapter 1 and verse 2, he described Job as, as, I believe, the most holy person on the earth. He said he's a perfect and upright man. He avoids evil. He fears me. There's none like him in all the earth. He was an exceptionally godly person. But through his tribulations and trials, even Job got a little bit out of sorts about who God was. And he began to think about his suffering, and he began to think about the fact that all of his friends were saying, look, the reason why you're suffering these things is because God's done this to you, so obviously you've done something wrong. And Job's going, look, I didn't do anything wrong. Look, I know God's done this to me, but I don't know why. And so Job, in his righteous indignation, we might say, just says these words, oh, that I knew where I might find him. Talking about God. He says that I might come to his seat, I would present my case before him. I would fill my mouth with arguments. Now listen to his words. I would know the words which he would say to me. Would he contend with me in his great power? No. But he would take note of me. Is that what you think about God? That God is like us? That we can stand up and tell him what for? That we can look him directly in the eye and we can demand of him and have him answer us? Well, that's what Job thought. But then, you know, God gave him that opportunity. And you know what he told him? He said, gird up your loins like a man. He's saying, put on your big boy britches and get yourself ready. Because I'm going to give you an opportunity to answer some questions that I have. And he asked Job about wonderful things, marvelous things, about the creation of the world. And where were you when I created the stars and I formed the world and I hung the earth on nothing? And where were you when the angels sang for joy? And he said, answer if you know. And Job sat silent. And he said, I will lay my hand over my mouth as a gesture. And God said, wrong answer. We're not done. And so we began to ask him about more things, marvelous things, things that he could not possibly understand. And you know, Job finally got it. And in Job 42 and verse 5, Job said, I have heard of thee, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Lest that language escapes you, what Job is saying is, God, look, I've heard of who you are, but now that I've seen you, I hate 
who I am. Well, that's a very different attitude from the guy that thought he could go stand in front of the throne of God and demand of him. Job said, I see you, and I'm sorry, and I'm nothing. You know, another person that witnessed the majesty of God was one of his prophets, Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, as Isaiah recorded, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. And he's talking about a certain kind of angel there. And he says, Each one had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now listen. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. Could you imagine that scene? You know, I would think that if we saw an angel, we would probably stand with mouth gaping open in awe of that majestic sight. It would be amazing to us to see a sight like this. But that's not all Isaiah saw. He says, I could see, in a veiled way, I could see God sitting on his throne and the voice of these seraphim crying, Holy, holy, holy. And he said the sound was so loud that the posts of the door were shaken. Every time we see someone around the throne of God, the same thing happens. But you know, with Isaiah, it was just like with Job. When he saw the majesty of God, he saw the holiness of God. You know what he said? He said, woe is me, for I am undone. Friends, I'm afraid we think we could look at God. We see God, and, and that because he's our father, that somehow he's made us his equal. And people have... Taken the grace of God and His mercy, which are wonderful things, but they've taken that to such an extent, they've forgotten who God really is. That He is a God who is holy, and He is a God who is to be feared. And we see this scene in Revelation of millions of angels standing around His throne, and they cry out day and night. All they can say in the presence of God is, Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And the 24 elders that were there around that throne, they cast down their crowns. And they said, worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and power, for you created all things. And by your power, your will, they exist and were created. Have we forgotten who God is? I'm going to tell you, friends, God is not like us. He's not like a man. He's not somebody that we can outsmart. He's not someone we can outreason. He's not someone that we can convince to do anything contrary to his purpose and his will. God is a holy God. He's a powerful God. 
He is the creator of all things. And friends, the very air that we breathe is because our God is mighty. You know why people want to shape God into something different? Because they know if God is really a holy God, if He's really a mighty God, if He's really a just God, then I've got to change. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 14, he says, As obedient children, not conforming yourself or shaping yourself to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who is called you, who, he who, good grief, I'll get that out in a minute. <laughs> but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, Be holy for I am holy. Now I want to ask you a question. When you read these words, Be holy for I am holy, what do you think? Be morally good, for I am morally good. Doesn't quite do it, does it? Be better than the world, for I am better than the world. Be holy. Well, what does that mean? As I am holy. Friends, God has not called us into his kingdom to be a people who are morally mediocre, who are just morally good. God has called you to be holy as He is holy. And you know, people, they argue with themselves in their mind about this, and they say, well, I understand that He's called us to be holy, but we can't be holy. Why? Well, because we just can't be perfect. And if we're too holy, the world's just going to call us holier than thou anyway. Well, I'm going to tell you a lot of times that's the way we look at it anyway. We think, well, I don't need to be holy as God's holy. I just need to be holier than you. I had somebody one time tell me, they said, did you know the Bible actually says not to be too righteous? Well, it does say that. In Ecclesiastes 7 and 15, where Solomon says, I've seen everything in my days of vanity. There's a just man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. Do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Do not be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? And they'll use this and say, well, see, you really just need to be kind of in the middle. And I just want to ask you a question. Have you ever read the book of Ecclesiastes? You know, if this statement was written on its own in a book that had nothing else surrounding it, there went to your new microphone, Yancey. If there was nothing else surrounding these verses, I suppose we could probably conclude that that's exactly what Solomon was trying to say was, you know, don't be overly righteous. But you know what he's really saying? is under the sun, if there's no God, why would you spend your life trying to be better than everybody else and trying to just strive and kill yourself to being so good when it doesn't matter, you're going to die anyway? Because he says, I've seen righteous people perish and I've seen wicked people prolong their life and outlive the righteous. So really when you look at it from a carnal view, it would make no sense to kill yourself trying to be overly righteous. He's not saying, look, don't strive to be holy. Don't strive to grow. Don't strive to be better than you are. That was not his point. 
And we look at the world and we think, well, I'm doing pretty good. We look at that chart and we say, well, these people are messed up. They don't know who God is. And I'm going to tell you, that's foolishness. It's foolishness. He says, for we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Friends, be very careful. Be very careful about looking at other people's life and thinking their life is the standard of moral excellence. Their life is the standard of holiness. And that because I'm doing better than them, I must be doing pretty good. Because he says, you know what, we're not of those number. We're not the people that commend themselves. And he said, when they do that, when they compare themselves among themselves, he said, that is foolish. That is not wise. Holier than thou? No, God said, be ye holy as I am holy. I want to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and, and I'm going to read part of this particular reading at this time. Um, you know, when you look, look at our society, I'm going to tell you that, that it's discouraging sometimes. It's, if you think about things, the changes that have been made, it is discouraging. But it's nothing different from what the world has been. And Corinth was one of those societies that was very much like our society today. Well, they were messed up, okay? Their idea of what was right and wrong, it was messed up. And they were accustomed to living in a world of people like this. And when they were called into the kingdom, into the family of God, Paul did not say, look, you just be better than everybody else in Corinth and you'll be okay. He looked at them and he said, look, you used to live this way, but you can't live that way anymore. In fact, he said, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship or we might say communion or participation, what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? Can you answer that question? I think we can all answer that question, can't we? Because it's a rhetorical question. The answer is none. There's no communion between light and dark. There's no fellowship between what's right and what's wrong. But you know what we do? We will walk the line of right and wrong. Walk the line of light and dark and we'll just weave in and out. You know why? Because, well, it's okay because I'm under grace. And I can walk over in the darkness because God's going to forgive me and I can walk back over in the light and everything will be just fine. And I want to ask you a question. Do you think God is walking the line of light and dark? Is that where he's walking? Did Christ walk the line between what's right and what's wrong, weaving in and out? Jesus said in Luke chapter 11 and 34, The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body also is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Now listen very closely. He says, therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. That's a little bit deep, isn't it? What's he saying there? Well, the word bad and good means whole and diseased. Now, I will tell you right now that I know where you're all at because I've been looking at you for the last 20 minutes. But if I'd have walked in here without these, I would have had to make a pretty good guess and probably failed miserably because I am blind as a bat. My vision's about 2200. I can see real clear to about here. My eyes are bad. 
And when I don't have something to help make my eyes see clearly, all of my perception's bad. And that means everything inside is bad. But when you see clearly, your perception is clear. And that's what Jesus is talking about, is perception here. And I will tell you that when your eyes bad, when your perception's bad, when your view is bad, you will justify the darkness against the light. And Jesus said, you better take heed that the light that's in you is actually not darkness. And you say, well, I just don't think that could happen. It happens every single day. And we see a warning of this in Isaiah 5 where he said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet, sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. And you know what? We get so things out of whack sometimes in life. We do these questionable things, and then we will actually argue for the darkness against the light. We will work very hard to justify what we might call questionable behavior, because who are you to tell me that what I'm doing is wrong? And I'm going to tell you something. When we are seeking to be holy as God is holy, we don't stop and make arguments about questionable behavior. We don't toe the line between light and dark. We don't walk the line of morally questionable. We walk fully away from that line in the light toward God's holiness. You know, I've seen a lot of shirts around. I guess this is a new craze. I was in Bogachitta, Mississippi with Lindell. And yes, that is the way you pronounce it. I was corrected 12 times. Bogachitta. This young lady came out of the hospital and she was wearing this t-shirt. And it says, I love Jesus. But I cuss a little. I cuss a little. I don't know if y'all have seen this guy that walks up and down 287 with the cross. Um, my wife knows this man personally. She went to school with him. Um, this man one day got very angry. Uh, blasted some people publicly with cursing. Was called out on it. Uh, defended himself. And I'm going to tell you, when we do that, him walking down the road with that cross means nothing. And I'm not saying it means anything anyway, but I'll tell you, we are not representatives of Christ when we justify the darkness. When we argue for our own behavior, when we try to justify ourselves, when we commend ourselves, we are not representatives of who God is. We're representatives of who we think God should be. Going back to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Now I want to take you back for a minute where he made the statement, what fellowship has right with wrong? What communion has light with darkness? And then he continues that thought with this thought. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, they shall be my people. Come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. You shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. What, what is his point here? Well, this is probably one of those places where those chapter breaks don't really make sense because right into chapter 7, 
he says this word, therefore. Because of what I've just said, therefore, he says, having these promises. What promises? The promise is that God will dwell in them and walk with them and be their God. They will be his people. I'll be their father. I will receive you. You'll be my children. Because of those promises that are based on what? If you will come out from among them and be ye separate. Because of these promises, he says, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Now listen, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We have swung the pendulum so far and we've got so infatuated with God's grace, we forgot God is a God to be feared, even by His people. Even by His people. You know, I take great comfort in the fact that Jesus Christ paid for my sins. Because I can't pay that price. And I take great comfort in the fact that God is a God of mercy and He forgives iniquity and He loves mercy. But friends, I can't take so much comfort in that that I think I can just live however I want. I can be morally mediocre. I can just walk the line and God will be pleased. Because God has not called us to that. He's called us to be holy. You know what I think the problem is? Sometimes we're just a fan of Jesus. We're just a fan. I remember a few years ago that the word Kevin Durant in Oklahoma was a name that brought smiles on the faces of everybody who was an Oklahoma City Thunder fan. And now you say those words and you better watch out. (laughs) Because at one time he was the greatest basketball player in the world, now he's a traitor. And you know, loyalty's that way when you're just a fan. I know people that worshipped Kevin Durant. In fact, when he left for Golden State, where did their loyalties go? They left with Kevin Durant. They were a little more than a fan, weren't they? And a lot of people were just fans of Jesus when Jesus was on the earth. You know, he had built, I guess you might say, quite a fan base. There was a lot of people who followed Jesus around. But there was one time in his ministry that I want to look at from John chapter 6 where we see exactly what happens. Because Jesus had fed the thousands and they had followed him across the water and they had gotten to where he was and they came to him and he said, you know why you're here? He said, the only reason why you're here is because you ate the loaves and you were filled. And he said, your fathers ate man in the wilderness and they're dead. But I have bread that if you'll eat it, you'll live forever. You know what they said? We want that bread. And he said, okay, it's me. I am that bread. He said, in fact, except you eat my body and drink my blood, you don't have any life in you. And you know what? That tested their loyalties. And they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? You ever had somebody saying something that you just said, I don't have to listen to this, and you just walked out of the room? 
That's why I stay off Facebook. Because <laughs> I feel that way a lot of times. I don't have to listen to this. <laughs> That's exactly how these people felt. Who can hear this? Who can listen to what this man is saying? Who can listen to this? And Jesus said, are you offended by what I've said? Does this offend you? You know what happened that day? The Bible says after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And I think we read these words and we go, oh, well, they just quit thinking that Jesus was a great person. They quit being a fan of Jesus. No, they didn't. They just quit walking with him. They walked away. They didn't like what he said. They didn't like what they heard. Because it did not fit the idea of their Jesus. This is not our Jesus. Our Jesus feeds us. Our Jesus says things that are good and wholesome. The truth is, Jesus is truth. And he didn't mince words. And he spoke the truth whether it offended them or not. Then Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. See, I'm going I'm to tell you what people think. They think, well, I can come to church and I can worship God and I can sing praises to Jesus and I can tell him how great he is and that's not good enough that's not good enough because you can be a fan of Jesus and a lot of people are going to be fans of Jesus they're going to like who he is they're going to like their concept of Jesus but I'll tell you what Jesus said if you're going to be my follower you got to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me you got to walk where I'm going to walk and you got to talk the way I'm going to talk and think the way that I'm going to think and you're going to be like me not like the world and not just a little better than the world Jesus was the perfect expression of God's character. Friends, Jesus is acquainted with our infirmities, but I'm going to tell you, Jesus is holy. He is clean. He is perfect. Going back to 2 Peter chapter 1, I want you to notice the last phrase of this that we read earlier. Who hath called you to glory and to virtue. I love the phrase that's in the middle of, of this passage in Ephesians 4. Uh, Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, and that means to beg you, to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. You know, I don't like going to the mall. I'll just be honest. <laughs> it, it makes me feel funny. <laughs> I don't like being in a place like that. Of course, I'm a podunk person. I understand that. But... I do, I'm kind of observant, and so 
I pay attention to people, and every now and again, you'll see a guy that's standing in a mall or in a store somewhere, and he'll be standing at attention. And I just automatically think to myself, he was a soldier. He was a soldier. And you know what? He takes that seriously. Because he realizes that he has a calling. And they're taught to walk worthy, walk a certain way, to act a certain way, to walk worthy of their calling. And we walk out into the world and we tell people about God and we do it with a ho-hum attitude like it's a chore. And I'm going to tell you, friends, that's not worthy. That's not worthy of the calling. When you look at the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ as these men went out and they took the message of Christ to the world, they walked worthy of their calling. You know what that meant? It meant that if you threaten my life, I don't care. I'm a child of God, and I'm walking with Christ. And I'll go be with him. Some of the sacrifices that we think we're actually making are probably not sacrifices at all. I say this from experience. Because I've thought, well, we've sacrificed that for the kingdom. And it probably wasn't that great a sacrifice. And then I hear brethren come back from India and from Nigeria and talk to me about some of the persecution that they go through. And I realize, you know what? My life is really easy. You know what my real problem is? Is that I live in a world where I look around and everything that's real to me are the things that I can see and the things I can touch and the conveniences that I'm accustomed to. And I want to shape God in comparison to that. And I'm telling you, friends, he won't be shaped. And we have no excuse for not walking worthy of the calling that we have been called to. You're called to be holy. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, I I don't get political, and I'm not going to get political, but I will tell you something that I struggled with. We, we had an election not long ago, and I found myself every day very intrigued by that election. So I'd get up in the morning, and I'd turn on Fox News. And I'd watch Fox News for about 30 minutes because I wanted to know what was going on. And then I found out something that for the rest of the day, I was angry. All day long, I was angry. And it hurt my work in the kingdom. And I'd forgotten something very important. And that's who I'm a truly a citizen of. And I love this country. I love this state. I don't want to live anywhere else, but I'm going to tell you something. My true citizenship is not in America. It's in heaven. And when we make ourselves Americans first, we make ourselves Christians second. That's very dangerous. Because then we get, get to start, start talking about what I have the right to do. And the rights that I've been given. 
And your rights as an American do not trump your commitment to the kingdom of God. They do not. Friends, who are you? Who are you? Are you just a person that's walking in the world being better than the world? Are you just a person that's being a little bit better than everybody in Denton, Texas? Are you a person that's maybe just a little bit above the other people that you come to church with? Are you a child of a holy God? And this world is truly not your home. Friends, maybe you haven't been walking worthy. Maybe you've walked clear over the line into darkness and you've been living a life that would dishonor the God of heaven. Well, maybe you need a fresh start. And I'm going to tell you, God is a God of fresh starts. God will forgive you of your iniquities. And friends, we offer the invitation of Jesus Christ. If you have any need tonight, come have a seat. We will help you as we stand and we sing.